Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, The Drowned World. Robert, you look hungry. Can I get you something? Not for myself, Miss Kingdom. I told you, call me Sarah. And it's no trouble at all. You need to eat. I haven't changed my mind about you, Sarah. It's not a bacterium. It's not a virus. We don't know how it spreads. We hardly know anything. Some are saying it's witchcraft. But you're a rationalist. I was. But then my daughter got ill. I was still travelling with the Doctor and Stephen, buffeting through space and time. We'd escaped the Dalek plot and so much death in my own time, and seen Christmas and Liverpool and Mars. I was beginning to enjoy my time in the TARDIS. I must remind you, gentlemen, the woman you're about to hear was not visible in the room. She spoke from the very air. A voice from a thousand years ago, yet I dare any one of you to tell me that she is not just as alive as we are. I haven't changed my mind about you, Sarah. Being here, calling you back by retelling your story, I've broken the law. You said there weren't any laws anymore. It doesn't matter. I swore an oath. So you came here, summoned me out of the air, thinking I'd grant you your wish. What then? You'll wish me away again. But you're still the only person to visit me in <laughs> a very long time. The stars are not shining properly, announced Madame Arcana, the astrologer, as she sipped at her second gin fizz of the day in the lounge bar of the Hotel de Cap in Antibes. It was the summer of 1929, and the doctor and I had been staying at the exclusive hotel for several weeks now. The doctor wanted to take advantage of the light in this part of France to practice his painting. I saw the break as a chance to observe and catalogue Terran fauna, I still had my thesis on the Doctor to complete. It was only sensible that I should include in it a case study of his favourite species. The stars are not shining properly, repeated Madame Arcana. She was a tall, slim woman in her seventies, dressed in a long green velvet robe. A turban was tied tightly around her head with a diamond clasp. The stars are not shining properly, I asked, and idly looked out through the open French windows. It was the middle of a bright, sunny afternoon. The scent of lavender hung in the air. Crickets were chirruping. In the distance, I could hear the waves of the Mediterranean softly lapping against the yachts moored in the harbour. 
The stars have not been shining properly for at least 100 years now, Madame O'Connor insisted. I have read the scrolls, Miss Romana. I have drawn the pentagram. Scrolls? Pentagram, I asked. Oh, please don't distress yourself, Madame O'Connor. I can assure you that there's been absolutely no untoward stellar activity in this part of the galactic quadrant for well, several centuries now. In fact, not ever since... The Great Comet of 1800, boomed a voice from the far end of the room. The doctor was standing there, a berry on his head, a paintbrush behind his ear. He gave us both a toothy grin and strode over to Madame Arcana to shake her warmly by the hand. The Great Comet of 1800 had appeared over this part of France, the doctor explained. The local peasants had thought that it foretold the end of the world. At least you don't doubt me, my dear doctor, Madame Arcana said. She finished her gin fizz and looked around for a waiter to replenish her glass. I see in you a like-minded spirit. I know of une petite auberge by the old harbour, where we could view the stars together and I could tell you tales of my home in Greece. Oh, do say yes, doctor, I said. I'm sure it would be a fascinating evening. You could tell me all about it in the morning. It will make for an interesting biographical footnote in my thesis. Before the doctor could escape Madame Arcana's attentions, a tall, smartly dressed man in his fifties walked up to her. Now then, Madame Arcana, I'm sure the doctor and his companion have business to attend to. The newcomer spoke with an American accent, and though his words were gentle, his tone was firm. But, Mr. Crane, I am telling the doctor about the stars, she said. They're not shining properly, you know. Yes, my dear, I'm sure they're not, he replied. Now let me take you out onto the terrace. It really is too charming a day not to be outside. Remember the stars, doctor, Madame Arcana called out as she was led away. Let us meet at eight tonight, and then I can show you my scrolls. Oh, you've got an admirer, I chuckled after they'd left. Who? Madame Arcana? Far too young for me, the doctor replied. I can just see the two of you down by the harbour, sipping pastis and pondering pentagrams, I said. I promise I'd keep out of your way. Before the doctor could reply with doubtlessly a sarcastic comment, the terrace doors opened. The four newcomers were returning from a game of tennis and were dressed in white. Anne and Sally were of a similar age in their early twenties. Even at this hour of the day, Sally was wearing bright red lipstick and her hair was cut in a stylish bob, in contrast to the loose curls of her more demure friend. The older man was in his late thirties. Professor Henri Chevalier was a speleologist and something of an adventurer by all accounts. He'd been staying at the hotel for a while now, excited by the discovery of a prehistoric cave near the sea. Young Thomas Crichton was the fourth member of the party. Tommy came from a rich English family who'd sent him on a grand tour of Europe, but he'd arrived in Antibes and had stayed. Romana, you surely do look splendid, he gushed. But then you always do look splendid. Yes, Tommy, I sighed, and so you keep saying. I tried to change the subject and glowered at the doctor who was sniggering in the background. How was tennis? Tommy and Anne absolutely thrashed us, darling, said Sally. I thought Tommy was wonderful, Anne ventured shyly. Of course, Henri and I would have won if I'd been playing with my own racket, Sally continued. 
It's gone AWOL. I had to borrow one of Anne's. Darling, it's simply too tiresome for words. You don't think it was stolen, do you? asked Anne. Lady Darlington's lorgnette went missing just the other day, you know. And Binky Blaine can't find his copy of that new novel by Mrs. Christie. He swears he left it in his room and now it's gone. The doctor became interested. Was a petty thief working in the hotel, he wondered aloud. The professor shook his head. Things had indeed gone missing from residence rooms recently, he told us, but nothing of value. In all probability, the items had been mislaid. It was no coincidence that Lady Darlington was nicknamed Dotty, after all. Dear Dotty has been behaving more oddly than ever since she made all that fuss about losing her lorgnette, Sally remarked. Really? asked the doctor. Oh, yes, I noticed that too, said Anne. She's been spending so much time with Mr. Crane recently. I heard talk she was going to invest some money in one of his business ventures. I asked Anne why that seemed odd. Well, Lady Darlington's never displayed the slightest familiarity with Mr. Crane before. In fact, just two weeks ago, she called him... Uh, well, I, I wouldn't like to say. Anne lowered her eyes, embarrassed. She called him a spineless peddler of genocide, whose only interest was money, and who she wished would burn in hell, Sally said cheerfully. Her two brothers were killed in the Great War, Tommy explained, and Crane Industries is involved in the munitions business. Yes, that does seem odd, I agreed. I can hardly see the two of them in business together. Well, I feel dashed put out, said Tommy. No one's thought to steal anything from me. Maybe that's because you are the thief, Tommy, Sally said. I say, you don't think, he asked. I'm sure Sally's teasing you, I reassured him. Oh, yes, very amusing, he said. I say, Romana, Mr. Crane is holding a party on board his yacht, the Hermes, tonight. You would be doing me the most awful honour if... Tommy, I'm old enough to be your... Well, I'm old enough, I told him. But I'm sure Anne would like to go. And besides... I looked over at the doctor and then the professor, hoping they'd back me up. You see, Tommy, I have a previous engagement. The professor here has promised to indulge the doctor and myself in a spot of spelunking. He's promised to do what? asked Tommy aghast. Cave exploring, Tommy. We're going cave exploring. It was dark when the professor led us along the narrow coastal path. The stars in the sky twinkled brightly. Romana, that was shameless, the doctor scolded me. Forcing the professor here to show us his cave, just so you could get out of your date with Tommy Crichton. Aha, but it got you out of your date with Madame Arcana as well, didn't it? I pointed out. And I'm sure you wouldn't mind seeing the cave either. About halfway down the beach, we could make out in the moonlight the cave's open mouth. The professor told us he'd discovered it two years ago. And you think it shows evidence of human occupation? The doctor asked. A small battery generator powered a series of lamps set up inside the cave, and the professor flicked them on. See for yourself, doctor, he said. The cave was ovoid, and about 100 meters in circumference. Its walls, floor and roof were almost completely smooth. The full moon shone through a fissure in the roof, and the light glistened and glimmered on the rock. A few wooden crates, presumably containing the professor's tools and equipment, were stacked in one corner, otherwise the place was bare. 
There was an unpleasant smell, the faint scent of rotten eggs. The doctor identified it as hydrogen sulfide. I caught a flash of colour at the far end of the cave and went over to examine it. Suddenly, I lost my footing, and the professor quickly grabbed me before I fell. The ground was covered with a thin, reddish-brown sheen of... what? Slime, or some sort of algae or fungus? I couldn't tell, but for now I was more concerned with my discovery. Exquisite paintings covered the cave walls. This, obviously, is a representation of a hunting expedition. These are the hunters, I said, pointing to figures carrying what appeared to be spears. And this is their prey. Isn't that right, Doctor? The Doctor peered at the paintings, but didn't reply. And you say you believe these caves are Paleolithic, he asked the Professor. Similar sites have been discovered in the Pyrenees, he replied. I estimate them to be over 10,000 years old. The Doctor looked around at the cave walls and wondered what could have caused them to become so smooth. Well, I should think that's obvious, I answered. At one time, this cave must have been underwater. Over the years, constant battering by the tides would have eroded the walls. Possibly, the Doctor said, but not by the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean was a landlocked and virtually tideless sea, he told me. It would take millions of years to wear these walls down. Oh, I see. Just like the tertiary tranquility of Candelinga, I realised. The Professor looked at me strangely. Suddenly, a loud crashing noise came from the mouth of the cave. The lamps cut out and everything went black. In the darkness, something stumbled and shuffled towards us. Tommy, I exclaimed, what are you doing here? Uh, looking for you, he replied. If we hurry, we might just be able to make the shindig of Mr. Crane's. And I'm frightfully sorry about these lights, Prof. I must have accidentally knocked that generator thing. I say, I hope I haven't broken anything. The doctor brought the conversation to a close. It was late and we should all return to the hotel. The professor excused himself. He would have to check what damage, if any, Tommy had done. On the way back, a lorry rumbled past, forcing us to jump out of the way. It's heading for Broderick Crane's villa, Tommy explained. They've been making deliveries every night there for the past few weeks now. We walked on a little further. On the approach to the hotel, we could hear music coming from the Hermes, moored in the harbour. Tommy turned to me and flashed what he obviously thought was his most winning smile. I say, Romana, he said, Mr Crane is holding another party tomorrow night and I know you said, but, well, I just wondered. Tommy, I reproved. Well, you can't blame a chap for trying, he said cheerfully. We'd now reached the hotel. Once Tommy had gone to his room, the doctor asked me what I thought of the paintings in the cave. As I said, they're plainly pictograms of hunters and prey, I replied. However, I know my knowledge of Terran fauna is limited, but I must say some of those animals didn't seem at all familiar. You noticed that as well, did you? the doctor said. Those animals aren't native to Earth. They're found only on worlds orbiting the star safe in the constellation of Orion. I don't think that cave is Paleolithic at all. Those paintings were put there to make us believe that it was, but whoever did that made a mistake. And another thing, I've just remembered who Hermes is. Hermes? I asked. It's the name of Mr. Crane's yacht. He's also the god of lies and of thieves, 
the doctor smiled at me. Romana, you shall go to the ball after all. Of all the yachts in the harbour, the Hermes was by far the largest and most luxurious. As I descended the next evening into its spacious function room, I couldn't help but be impressed. A band was playing what Sally had assured me were the popular tunes of the day. Champagne glasses clinked. Waiters weaved their way through the well-heeled crowd, offering canapes. Broderick Crane was the perfect host, greeting all his guests with affable charm. The doctor had decided to stay behind on shore. With Crane occupied, this evening would be an ideal opportunity to investigate the mysterious deliveries to the villa. Much to Tommy's disappointment, I'd asked the professor to accompany me. I wondered whether Henri realised the significance of the cave paintings and resolved to raise the subject with him later. Besides, Henri was a charming companion and far more interesting than the immature Tommy. I had, however, suggested that Tommy escort Anne to the party. The shy, retiring girl was obviously smitten with him. Tommy had agreed, and Anne's face was delightful to behold. Yet when they walked on board the yacht, she looked distraught. I was with Henri and Sally. Anne spotted us, and she and Tommy came over. Sally, my dear, I've done the most dreadful thing, she said. How will you ever forgive me? Darling, whatever is the matter? Sally asked. Anne reminded Sally of a brooch Sally had lent her a few weeks ago, an emerald in a gold setting. And now I've lost it, she said. I swear it was in my bedroom drawer and now I can't find it anywhere. Can you ever forgive me? Sally laughed the matter off. It was just a cheap piece of paste, she assured her. Of course, perhaps Anne didn't lose it, said Tommy. Perhaps there really is a thief working in the hotel after all. Perhaps he, or she, stole it. Just then, Broderick Crane, who'd been chatting with Lady Darlington, came over and asked whether Henri could join them for a moment. After Henri had excused himself, Sally scowled after the two men. Despicable man, she hissed. Who, the professor, I asked. I think he's rather pleasant. You do? asked Tommy, and his face fell. No, not him, said Sally. Crane! making millions from selling arms to half the tin-pot dictatorships around the globe. If you disapprove so much, then what are you doing here? I asked. Well, it's a party, isn't it? She smiled. Now, is that a Lindy Hopper here? Sorry, darlings, moustache. Doodle-pip! I wish I could be more like her, Anne sighed, after Sally had left and Tommy had gone to fetch some drinks from the bar. She's always so confident and outgoing, Perhaps if I were more like her, then Tommy would notice me. Sally is so energetic. She laughed in a self-deprecating manner. And as for me, well, can you imagine I had to take a nap before tonight's party? That's how boring I am. I assured Anne she wasn't boring at all and suggested she try one of the canapes which the waiters were offering. She declined. She wasn't hungry, she said. In fact, she felt full which was odd, she told me, as she hadn't eaten anything since breakfast. And then suddenly she turned pale. She started to shiver. She hugged herself for warmth. I asked her what was wrong. She was feeling nauseous, that was all, she said. It was nothing to worry about. Tommy returned with the drinks and offered to take her on deck for some fresh air. Anne shook her head. She would be fine if she could just sit down for a minute. Tommy and I weren't to trouble ourselves. 
Tommy asked a passing waiter for water and then turned back to me. I say, Romana, now that the prof is caught up with Mr. Crane and Anne is feeling a tad peaky, I don't suppose you'd like to Charleston with me, he asked. Tommy, you're incorrigible, I said, but couldn't resist a smile. You should be looking after poor Anne over there. Besides, I can't even do the Charleston. I could teach you, he offered. I'd wager you're an awfully fast learner. No, Tommy, I said firmly. Tommy shrugged resignedly. At the very least, accept this as a peace offering, he said, and drew something out of his pocket. To show there are no hard feelings? He handed me a small pocket mirror. It was something he'd picked up in the market at Nice, he said. Tommy was so insistent that reluctantly I accepted the gift. My pleasure, Romana, he said. I really do... Oh, my word! Just look at that! I looked to where Tommy was pointing. Oh, good heavens, I exclaimed. Anne, shy, retiring Anne, was in the middle of the floor, dancing a frenetic version of the Charleston. She beamed with delight at the circle of cheering male admirers who'd gathered around her. Come on, boys, she drawled in a voice more like Sally's than her own. Which one of you is going to Charleston with me? She didn't wait for an answer. She grabbed the nearest available man and dragged him off to the centre of the floor. It was something we might have expected from Sally. It was unthinkable for Anne. Anne danced till the sweat glistened on her arms, flirting brazenly with her dancing partner for all to see. And then suddenly she stopped. She raised her hands to her face, sobbed in horror and raced off the dance floor. I followed after her onto the open deck. She was leaning over the side of the yacht, retching. Romana, whatever must you think of me, she asked. How absolutely shameful of me. Anne, you were only dancing, I told her. Like some shameless wanton, she wept. Oh, believe me, Romana, that's nothing like me. I don't know what possessed me. You got carried away with the music, that's all, I assured her. I sniffed the air, recognised the same smell of sulphur I'd detected in the cave. Let me get you back to the hotel. I started to help her away from the side when I spotted something glistening in the moonlight. There at Anne's feet was a thin trail of reddish-brown slime. It led from where she was standing and overboard and into the warm, quiet waters of the Mediterranean. After taking Anne ashore and making sure she was sleeping soundly, I returned to the hotel lounge. The doctor was sitting there with Madame Arcana. I smiled at the number of empty glasses of ginger beers and gin fizzes in front of them. It seemed the doctor had been trying to escape his admirer's attentions for most of the night. Doctor, what are you doing here? I asked. I thought you were supposed to be going... Uh, I nodded in the direction of Crane's villa. Madame Arcana had intercepted him as he'd been making out for the villa, he told me. Scrolls, I suppose, I said. Oh, go on, Doctor. Do let Madame Arcana show them to you. I'm sure they'll be fascinating. That is what I say, agreed the old astrologer, her voice slurred from the gin fizzes. But will he listen to me? You think I am just a silly old woman, but my scrolls hold the key to the future. If one only knows where to look... And they tell me there is danger abroad. 
Madame Arcana delved into the voluminous folds of her velvet robe. She pulled out what appeared to be a small diamond and pressed it urgently into the doctor's hand. Take this, doctor, she insisted. Let it be your lucky charm. Let it protect you from the power of the stars. The doctor protested, but Madame Arcana would hear nothing of it. And then, having persuaded the doctor to accept her gift, she made her way to her room on the second floor. I turned to the doctor. Madame Arcana was just a foolish old lady, wasn't she? Most probably, the doctor replied. But I could tell from the tone of his voice that he wasn't quite so sure anymore. I called on Anne the following morning. She was feeling much better, she assured me. Her behaviour of the previous night now just a bad memory. I told her she needed a refreshing walk along the beach. The Mistral was blowing in from the east, and it would be an ideal day for a stroll. Of course, I had an ulterior motive. The traces of slime on the deck of the Hermes reminded me of the slime in the cave. Was there a connection? The professor had left the hotel for the day, having business down the coast in Nice, so I asked Anne if she would accompany me. She'd known the professor for just over 12 months now, she told me. He was a terribly important man, whose family originally came from around these parts. In fact, he came from a long line of explorers. Both his father and his grandfather had made archaeological discoveries along the Mediterranean coast, in Tangiers and Tunis, in Tobruk and Thessalonica. We'd reached our destination by now. Unlike the last time, there was no need to switch on the lamps inside the cave. The sun shone in through the aperture in the roof, giving us plenty of light to see by. I reached over to touch the smooth walls. They were covered with a reddish-brown slime, exactly the same slime I'd found on the Hermes. There was something on the ground, and I knelt down to take a closer look. It was a small emerald brooch. I showed it to Anne, who confirmed that it was indeed the brooch Sally had lent her. I went over to one of the crates occupying a corner of the cave. Anne helped me to remove the lid, and I peered inside. It was packed with the usual tools of a speleologist's trade, and of all things, a tennis racket. Anne recognised it as the one belonging to Sally which had gone missing from her room. I delved deeper into the crate. I don't understand, said Anne. That's Lady Darlington's lorgnette. And this is Binky Blaine's book. And look, that's Lord Brockhurst's cigarette case. He lost it last month and was terribly put out. Anne, I think you should go back and fetch the doctor, I told her. I'll stay here and see what else I can find. When Anne had gone, I glanced over at the paintings on the far wall. They were glistening now, just as they had done on the night we first visited. From outside, I could hear the gentle lapping of the Mediterranean. And then it was joined by another sound. The sound was coming from within the cave itself. A slow drip, drip, dripping. Quiet at first, then grown louder, echoing around the cave. Something splattered on my face. I instinctively brushed it away. Small globules of a viscous reddish-brown substance fell to the floor. There they danced and bubbled about like drops of quicksilver, forever splitting and reforming. I looked up. Beads of red were forming on the cave roof. Sulfurous globs of thick red slime dropping one by one by one to the ground. 
like blood. There they coalesced, uniting into one girdling mass which started to take shape. Thick gelatinous rivulets of red oozed from out of the walls, adding more substance to the creature emerging from out of the slime. It had the vague appearance of a squid or octopus with long, thrashing tentacles. The creature's one baleful eye opened and fixed me with an icy gaze. In place of a mouth, it had a beak which cawed greedily at me, slithering in and out of innumerable suppurating sores on its body were scores of maggot-like creatures, each about six inches long. Their mouths gaped open, and from every mouth, three forked tongues darted in and out, spitting at me. I turned to run. My feet would not move. They were trapped in the thick sludge now seeping out of the very ground itself. I wrenched myself free and ran to the cave exit. A tentacle lashed out from the creature. It wrapped itself around my feet. I crashed to the floor. The creature increased its grip, started to drag me towards it. I clawed at the ground, trying to pull myself away. The thing opened up its beak. Gobs of acidic saliva fell to the ground where they hissed and sizzled. With a terrible roar, the creature reared itself over me and prepared to strike. a blinding white light filled the cave. The lamps in the cave flashed into life. The creature snarled, momentarily confused. Taking advantage of the distraction, I pulled myself free from its clammy hold. I staggered to my feet and headed towards the cave mouth and crashed right into Tommy, who'd activated the lights and was running into the cave. When he saw the creature made of slime, he froze. Don't just stand there, Tommy, I cried out. Do something! With Tommy's help, I sent one of the heavy lamps crashing into the creature. The lamp exploded, showering the thing in a thousand shards of glass. It squawked angrily and retreated a little. What manner of horror is that? Tommy asked. At the moment, Tommy, I don't really care, I replied. Can we discuss this later, please? One of the maggots left its host and slinked across the ground towards us. It leapt up at the terrified Tommy and crawled up the side of his body so swiftly that he didn't even have time to try and pull it off. Romana, for pity's sake, help me, he cried out. And as he did, so the worm slithered into his open mouth. Tommy moaned and bent double. He clutched his stomach in agony. In the corner, the larger creature growled but made no move towards us. And then Tommy stopped groaning. He stood up straight and turned towards me. His face was pale, his eyes black and unseeing. 
Grabbing me roughly by the shoulders, he pushed me towards the salivating maw of the creature. Tommy, stop! It's me, Romana, I said. I don't understand what's happened, but that thing has possessed you in some way. From behind me, I could smell the acrid stench of the creature's breath. I tried to wrestle Tommy off me. He was too strong. And then, as abruptly as it had started, it finished. Tommy blinked. His eyes cleared and he looked at me as if for the first time. He coughed and retched. The maggot spewed itself out from his mouth and tumbled to the floor where it crawled over to rejoin its host. The larger creature started to lose all shape, rapidly reverting to its original amorphous form. It shrank and dissolved until it was just a huge aqueous pool which quickly drained away into the ground. Within a minute, all that remained was a reddish-brown gleam on the floor and walls of the cave. Tommy turned to me. I helped him into the open air. What was that hideous thing? he asked. Some sort of highly developed protozoa, I should imagine. A protein agglomeration with an aggressive gestalt sentience capable of autonomous cellular detachment and mutation. A what? he asked. It's a monster, Tommy. I could feel it inside me, he gasped. And yet it left your body, I said, and thought back to last night, just as it left Anne's body. Let's get back to the hotel. I think the doctor should hear about this. I could feel that terrible worm inside me, doctor, Tommy said. It was early evening now, and the sun was sinking on the horizon. I could feel it twisting inside me, trying to take control of me. I took the empty brandy glass from Tommy's shaking hand. But the fact is, you resisted it, I pointed out. I don't think he did, the doctor said. I doubt our good friend here was capable of doing anything for himself at that point. From what you've told me, the creature tried to take over Tommy by means of this mental parasite, this psychovore, and for some reason it couldn't maintain its hold on his mind. Anne held Tommy's hand. He did not withdraw it. That's what happened to me on the yacht last night, wasn't it? she asked. That's right, I replied, and for some reason it failed with you just as it failed with Tommy. So, to sum up, we're dealing with a shape-shifting monster, hiding within an ersatz paleolithic cave, the walls of which are covered with paintings of beasts from halfway across the galaxy, which can spontaneously generate parasites capable of physically and mentally invading a human host. Oh, and which has also performed a series of petty thefts in one of the most exclusive hotels on the French Riviera. Not quite F. Scott Fitzgerald, is it? remarked the doctor. He asked Anne which guests had had items stolen from their room. There was Lady Darlington, and Binky Blaine, and Lord Brockhurst, and Percival Brown, and Sally, of course. Did the victims have anything in common with each other? Nothing at all, Anne said. Well, apart from the fact that they're all rich, of course... Binky Blaine made a fortune on the stock market, and Sally's father is something in shipping. But with all this money around, why is the thief only taking worthless items, I wondered. The professor and Sally walked into the lounge. They'd been passing by and had seen that Tommy was in some distress. They wanted to see if they could help. Sally was wearing a blood-red crepe de chine dress. I complimented her on it and asked her what the special occasion was. Darling, it's simply too thrill-making for words, she replied. Mr. Crane is taking me out for dinner at absolutely the most exclusive restaurant on the entire Riviera. Broderick Crane, I asked. 
the man you called despicable only last night. Oh, fiddlesticks. He's the most charming man I ever met, Sally said. He should be with us any minute now. He said he had to take delivery of some, oh, I don't know, some whatnots at his villa, and then he'd be here presently. Look, there he is now. Yoo-hoo, Mr. Crane! Broderick Crane came over to kiss Sally's offered hand. He bowed formally to the rest of us. He was having a final end-of-season party on board his yacht tomorrow night, and he insisted we attend. It would be a most exclusive guest list, he assured us. The doctor told him we'd be delighted to come. Crane and Sally were about to leave when Madame Arcano burst into the room. Under one arm she was carrying a bundle of tightly rolled papers. In her hand there was a gin fizz. From the way in which she tottered towards us, it was obviously not her first of the evening. It's scroll time, Doctor, I smiled. My dear Doctor, you are such a naughty, naughty man, Madame Arcana scolded. You have been avoiding me, have you not? But I will have my way. I will show you my scrolls. Then you shall see how the stars are not shining properly. Then you will know what to do. Madame Arcana led the unwilling doctor to a table where she set down her gin fizz and commenced to unfurl the first roll of paper. I took pity on the doctor. Madame Arcana, I'm sure that what you have to show the doctor is fascinating, I told her, but perhaps it could wait until tomorrow morning. It is late and the doctor does need his sleep. He isn't getting any younger, you know. But the stars, insisted the old lady. Yes, yes, I know, the stars are not shining properly. I said patiently. I do believe you've said that before. Now, if you just leave the scrolls here, then the doctor can look at them in the morning. But I have drawn the pentagram, she told us. From my home in Thessalonica and all the way across the sea, I have drawn the pentagram. In her agitation, Madame Arcana knocked over her drink. The glass smashed on the floor. As the professor gathered up the broken glass, he cut his hand. I offered him my pocket handkerchief to stop the bleeding. When the glass had been cleared away, the professor took Madame Arcana gently by the arm. Wouldn't it be better if she were to go to bed now, he suggested. Perhaps she'd had just one too many gin fizzes for the evening. Reluctantly, Madame Arcana agreed and the professor helped her to the stairs leading to the guest bedrooms. Crane and Sally also took their leave and Tommy and Anne said they'd each retire for the night. Madame Arcana won't give up on you easily, Doctor, I remarked with a smile. The doctor nodded. He gathered up the scrolls and told me that he'd locked them safely in his hotel room. What had Madame Arcana meant about drawing the pentagram, he asked me. He had the strangest idea he was overlooking something. Whatever it is, it can wait for morning, I said, but the doctor shook his head. The night was still young, he declared, and there was work to be done. There had been regular deliveries of equipment to Broderick Crane's villa for the past few weeks, the doctor reminded me as we climbed the road leading to the villa. Yes, that's what Tommy told us, I said, and only at night, and only when Mr Crane is holding parties on board the Hermes. Didn't that strike me as odd? the doctor asked. Unless the parties on the yacht were organised so that no one would be able to see the deliveries being made, and if that were the case, then exactly what did Broderick Crane have to hide? I'm sure I don't know, Doctor, I said, nor do I see what Mr. Crane has to do with an alien creature lurking in a Paleolithic cave, and at least two failed attempts at psychic possession. The Doctor urged me to be quiet. 
we'd arrived at Broderick Crane's villa. The place seemed deserted. The doctor unlocked the gates with his sonic screwdriver and entered. The estate was built on a high hill overlooking the sea. Looking down, we had a clear view of the Hermes moored in the harbour. A driveway led to a courtyard at the back of the villa. A lorry was parked there, possibly the same one which had surprised us on the road the other night. And there was something else, too. Silhouetted against the moonlight and supported on a large iron gantry, a huge cannon was pointed upwards at the night sky. I asked the doctor what he thought it was. A giant laser cannon pointing to the stars, he said. Then he frowned. There's just one small problem, Romana. Which is, I asked. Lasers haven't been invented yet, he replied. On our return to the hotel, the professor and Anne were waiting for us. Their faces were full of concern. Oh, my dears, the most terrible thing has occurred, Anne said. It's Madame Arcana. It's simply too frightful for words. After the professor had escorted Madame Arcana back to her room, it seemed that the old astrologer had woken in the night. Still drunk from her beloved gin fizzes, she must have stumbled out onto her balcony. From there, she'd fallen two floors onto the concrete terrace. She must have died instantly. So she'll never be able to show you the scrolls now, Doctor, I said sadly. The old joke was no longer funny. Nor tell me about the pentagram, the Doctor agreed. Suddenly, he became animated. We had to see Madame Arcana's scrolls immediately, he declared. There wasn't a moment to lose. He rushed out of the room. I gave a helpless smile to the professor and Anne and followed him. After the doctor had retrieved the rolls of paper Madame Arcana had given him, he unfurled the first one on the table. He asked me what I thought it was. It appears to be some sort of primitive star chart, I answered. I imagine Madame Arcana used this in her astrological calculations. I noted the date scrawled in the bottom right-hand corner, 1800. I recall the doctor telling me of the great comet that had appeared in this part of the sky during that year. The doctor nodded excitedly. He unrolled another scroll. This also seemed to be a star chart and of the same area of sky. This chart was dated 1829, exactly a hundred years ago. The doctor asked me to compare the two documents. Really, doctor, there's nothing to compare, I replied. The older chart has been handwritten and has a certain amateurish charm, I admit, and the second one has been printed, but they're essentially identical, depicting the same area of sky. I've no idea why Madame Arcana considered them so important. The doctor urged me to look again. I shrugged. The charts seemed indistinguishable from each other. Finally, I asked the doctor to give me the benefit of his superior knowledge, which, as usual, he did gladly. He jabbed a finger at one particular star on the chart produced a hundred years ago. He then asked me to mark out that star's position on the older map. Doctor, it's not there, I realised. Both charts are identical apart from that one star, which means that sometime after this chart was drawn and before this chart was produced, something came to Earth and stayed. The doctor unfurled a third sheet of paper. It was a map of the Mediterranean Sea, ripped out of an old Baidecker. Madame Arcana had marked five towns on the edge of the sea. 
The doctor took a pencil from his pocket and indicated one of the towns she'd singled out, Antibes. He traced a circle anti-clockwise, joining up the other towns, Tangiers, Tunis, Tobruk, and Thessalonica. They were all the places where Anne had told me the professor and his ancestors had uncovered archaeological ruins. I studied the map again, trying to think what these five Mediterranean towns could possibly have in common. And then it suddenly seemed so obvious. I snatched the pencil from the doctor and joined up the five towns again, this time not as roughly equidistant positions on a circle, but as the points of a five-pointed star. It's a pentagram, Doctor, just as Madame Arcana said. As the Doctor and I walked down the gangway to the Hermes, I looked at the water of the harbour. Was it my imagination, or did it have a reddish glow to it? We stood on the deck, and the Doctor pointed to the star Madame Arcana had discovered. Could I identify anything unusual about it? I shrugged. The Doctor told me to take a more careful look. It isn't shining properly, exactly like Madame Arcana said, I replied. Stars appear to twinkle due to atmospheric distortion, but this one is shining steadily. Is it a planet? If it was, it wasn't one which belonged to this solar system, the doctor said, but he thought it was something much closer than that. We had expected Broderick Crane to be waiting to greet us onto the Hermes. Instead, Sally came to welcome us on board. Mr. Crane would be with us shortly, she told us, but first of all, he had the most divine surprise arranged for us all. I sniffed the air. Once again, that vague smell of sulphur. Where was it coming from? This evening's gathering was a much smaller affair than other nights. The professor was there in conversation with Lady Darlington. He smiled and joined us. It looked set to be a wonderful party, he remarked. Or a meeting of victim support, the doctor remarked. Among the assembled guests were Lady Darlington, Binky Blaine, Lord Brockhurst, Percival Brown and Sally. All the victims of the hotel thefts had gathered for Broderick Crane's party. Not all of them, Doctor, I corrected him. Anne isn't here. She had her brooch stolen, remember? But the brooch hadn't belonged to Anne, the Doctor pointed out. The Professor smiled. She simply hadn't been invited, that was all. Some people disapproved of Mr. Crane, and that often made for awkward social situations. Like young Sally here, the doctor said. Or you, Lady Darlington. Your brothers were killed in the Great War, weren't they? A war which Crane in part funded. What tosh, said Sally. Mr. Crane is a thrillingly marvellous man. Everybody knows that. She'd called him despicable just two days earlier, I reminded her. Sally pouted and turned away. All of you good people have had belongings stolen, the doctor continued, and then you change. I wonder why. Doctor, what are you trying to say? the professor asked curiously. Of course, I said. Dottie's lorgnette is stolen. Suddenly she befriends Crane, a man she hates. The same with Sally after she loses her tennis racket and Binky Blaine and his book all personal possessions. Precisely, said the doctor, personal possessions, valueless in themselves, but somehow imbued with their owner's personality. Providing a psychometric link with that person, I realised. But what for? 
Well, said the doctor, you wouldn't want to go into a foreign country without a guidebook, would you? They've been possessed, just like Tommy was, I asked, and thought back to the psychovore in the cave. No, not like Tommy. Tommy had had nothing of his stolen, so the creature tried but couldn't make a connection. And Anne, the brooch was Sally's, not Anne's. That was why she behaved like Sally until the psychovore left her body. The doctor nodded excitedly. There was just one more question, he said. Who was the thief? Somehow, he couldn't imagine an enormous tentacled blob of alien protoplasm moving unnoticed among the sophisticated residents of the Hotel de Cap in Antibes. It would have to be someone respectable, someone everyone could trust, I guessed. Someone whose face everyone knows. Uh, uh Doctor, I have the oddest notion we may just have said rather too much for our own good. Indeed, you have, Romana, said the professor. His voice was different now, hollow, soulless. He and the other guests had gathered round us. Their eyes were dark and unseeing, exactly as Tommy's had been back in the cave. We are the safe, he explained. We are the slime. We are the creature that was born of that slime. You've taken over the professor and the others, I realized. You're parasites. Parasites only when we have to be, he replied. The safe inhabit the dead husks of these loathsome humans. We turn them to our purpose. The creature we thought had been the professor smiled cruelly. Gobbets of red appeared at the corners of his mouth, as if the psychovore inside him was trying to get out. We had identified this world as a breeding ground when our satellite was hit by a great cosmic storm, he continued. I remembered the comet of 1800 and how Madame Arcana's scrolls had proved that a new star had appeared in the sky in its wake. We abandoned ship, taking refuge in our escape chamber, which crashed and buried itself deep within the earth. Our technology was beyond repair. Without it, we lacked the means to create the breeding tank, so we sacrificed our natural form. The form you saw in the cave, we reverted to our basic protoplasmic state. We became absorbed within the walls of our chamber, knowing that its minerals would nurture and protect us. And then a man came, the creature whose body I now inhabit. We released a psychovore. We stole his human life. We twisted him into our tool. Over the long years, this man wandered the shores of the sea upon which this vessel now floats, and following our instructions, he set up a series of relay stations. In Thessalonica and Tobruk, in Tunis and Tangiers, I said. But it was Henri's father and grandfather who did that. The same man, possessed by the safe, the professor said and each relay station was aligned with the safe satellite. One relay station at each of the five points of Madame Arcana's pentagram, I realized. She didn't die by accident, did she? You killed her. 
She was beginning to know too much. The professor declined to answer. We waited till mankind's technology was advanced enough, he said. And then we offered the crane human a great secret. In return, he brought to us the wealthy of this world. Using the psychic blueprint from the stolen items, we entered them. We ate their bodies. We consumed their minds from within. We became them. Once they were part of the safe, they provided money for the equipment to assemble the technology we needed. And now the time is come to prepare the breeding tank. The breeding tank? What did he mean? I looked at the doctor who pointed out through the window of the yacht. Think, Romana, he said. What's so special about the Mediterranean? Well, it's virtually landlocked, I replied, and, and warm and relatively tideless. It will make the perfect breeding tank, the professor continued. The machine crane constructed will send a beam of concentrated light to our orbiting satellite. It will engage the elemental converter that will transmit five bolts of bioplasmic energy back down onto the relay stations. The sea will be encircled in a ring of fire. Its entire chemical composition will be altered to become a breeding tank for the safe. I'm sorry, but you can't do that, I informed him. The doctor and I won't allow it. Oh, I think we can, the professor said. He drew my attention to the stairs directly behind us, leading up to the deck. A creeping red ooze was slithering and sliming its way down the steps. As it rolled towards us, so it gained substance and form. It morphed itself into the true shape of the safe, the shambling octopoid creature which had attacked me in the cave. The distinctive reek of hydrogen sulphide filled the air. The Doctor and I ran across the room to the other stairway leading to the open deck. Hissing and snarling, Sally and the other humans possessed by the safe tried to bar our way. Sally lunged for me, knocked me to the ground. She threw herself on top of me, her hands reached for my neck. Globs of red dribbled from her mouth, they splashed my cheek and burned. The pain gave me a rush of adrenaline. I pushed her off. The Doctor dragged me to my feet. The possessed humans stood back now allowing the safe to come after us. One of the disgusting psychovores detached itself from the main body and slithered across the floor towards me, its three forked tongues flicking in and out of its mouth. That can't harm me, I called out to the professor. You have nothing of mine to establish a psychic link. Think again, he said, and drew from out of his pocket the handkerchief I'd given him the previous night. This is all we need. Join us. Become part of the safe. The psychovore reared its obnoxious body, preparing to jump. Suddenly it screeched and fell back. It burst into flame. The doctor grinned and waved his sonic screwdriver. The hydrogen sulphide the creature was emitting was highly inflammable. Already more psychovores were oozing out from under the slime-covered skin of the main safe beast. We staggered out onto the deck. The professor had unmoored the Hermes and set it sailing out to sea. We were alone, adrift in the Mediterranean. Can you swim? the doctor asked. I looked over the edge of the yacht. A red slime floated on the water, the safe protoplasm. 
Not in that, I told him. The professor had followed us onto the deck. There is no escape, he cried out. He pointed up at the night sky. The star of the safe is in position. Now the safe will breed. I say, came a familiar voice, could you chaps do with some help? I looked over the edge once more. Tommy was there in a small motorboat. Quickly we clambered down the boarding ladder. Tommy, what are you doing here? I cried out in delight. Not that I'm not pleased to see you, but... I heard you were attending Mr Crane's party, he said. And when I saw that awful red slime in the harbour heading for the boat... Oh, Tommy, I said, I could kiss you. Oh, I say, could you really? he asked. There's no time for that now, the doctor said urgently. We have to get to shore and stop Crane's machine. As we sped away from the Hermes, I looked back. The professor was standing on deck, laughing. He'd been joined by the other guests. You cannot succeed, he called after us. You are far too late. At last the time has come for the safe to breed and increase its size and number a thousandfold. Glistening, mucus-covered tentacles emerged from the professor's open mouth. They waved menacingly in the moonlight and then fell back, covering his whole face. It was as if the psychovore inside him, and which had possessed him for so long, was trying to escape. The horrible tendrils grew rapidly, engulfing his body in a matter of seconds. Soon he was no longer recognisable as a human being. The safe psychovore had now taken over his physical body completely. And then, a huge shaft of incandescent white light shot into the night sky. It came from the vicinity of Crane's villa and headed towards the orbiting satellite of the safe. We had been too late. The laser cannon had been fired. The safe had won after all. As soon as the beam hit the satellite, five individual beams of energy shot out from it. Slowly they descended towards the five relay points around the Mediterranean to Thessalonica and Tunis, to Tangiers and Tobruk, and to Antibes. Two gigantic arcs of energy leapt out from what I guessed was the location of the safe cave. One hurtled westwards to the relay point in Tangiers, and the other eastwards to Thessalonica. The entire Mediterranean, from the Dardanelles in the east to the Straits of Gibraltar in the west, became trapped in a dazzling ring of alien energy. The air crackled and burned. Safe have completed the circuit, I realised. We've lost. There was still time, the doctor said. It would take a few hours for the energy in the circle to reach a level capable of transforming the Mediterranean into the safe breeding tank. The motorboat scrunched against the side of the harbour wall. We leapt out and ran up the road towards Broderick Crane's villa. The doctor and I found Crane in the courtyard at the rear of the villa. He was standing by the laser cannon. Crane, you must shut that machine down, said the doctor. If you don't, then your entire species is in danger. You shall not stop me, doctor, Crane said. I've waited too long for this. You must turn the laser away from the satellite, I cried out. Don't you realize the consequence of your actions? The professor and his secret friends have offered me the power to change lead into gold, Crane said. That is the consequence of my actions. Look at what you're really dealing with, Crane. I pointed down the hill to the Hermes in the harbour. In just a few minutes, the safe had increased in size. 
its vile octopoid shape now engulf nearly half of the vessel. Its tentacles waved menacingly as it screeched in triumph. A foul stench wafted in from the Mediterranean. For a moment, Crane hesitated, horrified by the sight. The doctor strode forwards. Crane pulled a revolver from out of his blazer pocket. He would not allow the doctor to thwart his plans, he told him. He would kill him if he had to. Then kill me, said the doctor, and advanced on Crane, who aimed the gun at him. I say, I'm terribly sorry about this old chap, said Tommy, who'd come up behind Crane. He knocked him down to the ground. The doctor wasted no time. He wrenched open a panel on the side of the cannon and applied his sonic screwdriver to the workings within. They exploded in a shower of sparks. The beam from the laser cannon abruptly cut off. The doctor grinned, and then his face fell. He looked down to the harbour. The sea was still surrounded in the safe circle of energy. The circuit has become self-generating, I realised. It no longer needs power from the satellite. The doctor headed off towards the beach. Two vast beams of light were arcing out of the open mouth of the cave, or rather the escape chamber which had brought the safe to Earth. A shot rang out. Broderick Crane had followed us along the beach. He would not let us destroy his dream, he cried out. And then he fell into the water. Tongues of red slime crawled out of the sea, slowly gaining tentacled form. Within seconds, they dragged Crane into the Mediterranean, there to become part of the triumphant emergent safe. We were inside the cave now. Twin beams of energy were circling the cave walls before being flung back out into the night sky through the opening in the roof. We have to break the circuit, the doctor cried. We need to deflect the energy somewhere else. But for that, we would need some sort of reflecting device, I said. Tommy grabbed my arm. Ramana, do you still have the mirror I gave you? He asked me. I dug deep into my pocket and took out Tommy's mirror. I handed it to the doctor, but he shook his head. We could use the mirror to deflect the energy and break the circuit, but that would still leave the safe in the harbour. But if we could deflect the beam onto the Hermes, I suggested, would the beam be powerful enough to destroy the safe? The doctor wondered. But if we could somehow increase the power... I say, hang on, Tommy said. You need something to focus the energy, something like a, a diamond, perhaps. You don't happen to have one, do you? asked the doctor. Sadly not, he said. Well, I do, the doctor beamed. He rummaged in his pockets and took out the precious stone Madame Arcana had given him the night she died. She'd called it his lucky charm, he reminded me. Perhaps she really could tell the future after all. We left the cave and climbed out onto the hillside. The twin arcs of energy were streaming out of the fissure in the cave roof. Looking down at the harbour, I could see the safe. It had now totally enveloped the Hermes. There wasn't a moment to lose. I placed the mirror in the path of the energy stream. The mirror grew hot to the touch. There were only seconds left now. With the circuit now broken, the circle of fire would soon dissipate. I angled the mirror towards the harbour and deflected the beam of energy onto the yacht. The safe sensed something was wrong. It screeched out in anger. With infinite care, the doctor positioned Madame Arcana's jewel in the path of the deflected beam. It grew stronger and brighter, all its alien power now focused onto the safe in the harbour. Bolts of energy thudded viciously into the heart of the creature. It yowled in pain. 
Showing no mercy, the Doctor continued to concentrate the energy down into the harbour. The safe writhed in agony. Designed to alter the chemical composition of the Mediterranean, the energy was now ripping apart the physical structure of the safe itself. Unable to retain a coherent form, it dissolved into a huge amorphous blob, which curdled and bubbled and boiled on the deck of the Hermes. The stench of sulphur was now overwhelming. And then there was a colossal explosion, and the safe and the Hermes were transformed into a huge scorching ball of fire. Wreckage was flung all over the harbour, and the sky glowed red as the safe perished in the terrible conflagration. The circle of energy faded, the circuit forever broken. I dropped the mirror to the ground. The doctor returned Madame Arcana's jewel to his pocket. I gazed down at the blazing wreck of the Hermes. Oh, doctor, all those people, I said. Sally, Lady Darlington, the professor. They were dead the moment the psychovores had entered their bodies and established the physical and psychic link, he told me sadly. And the safe have gone, asked Tommy. Yes, Tommy, I replied. The safe have gone. So we've won, is that right? He wanted to know. Yes, Tommy, I said sadly. I suppose you could say we've won. Come on, I'm sure Anne will be waiting for you. Silently, we made our way along the beach and back to the hotel. Soon, the only sound was that of the waves lapping gently on the shore of the peaceful blue Mediterranean Sea. I'm David Richardson. I'm the uh, producer on the Companion Chronicles, and I'm here with Mary Tam, who plays Romana. Hello, Romana Veratrolunda. That's right. Uh, I'm not going to say it myself, but that brilliant. was pretty good. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, Nigel Robinson, who's Hello. the writer. Hi, Nigel. And Lisa Bowman, the director. Hello. Hello. Um, Mary, let's start with you. I mean, what's it been like revisiting Romana? Oh, I've loved it actually, because um, of course everybody always complains that I did leave the series too soon. It seemed like a long haul to me, but obviously on screen it was very short. So I think for the fans, I've already done something for Big Finish, but that was a different Romana. So really to come back and play the original, know-it-all kind of, um, you know, bit snotty, I should say, maybe not, Romana, um, it's been quite pleasant. Does it bring back memories? Oh, gosh, yes, it does. I mean, reading Tom's lines always makes me feel a bit frightened, just, just imagining their you know, saying them and um, me quaking in my boots the while. <laughs> <laughs> and is it, I mean, is the show something that you still hold affection for? Oh, gosh, yeah, very much so. I mean, um, as you know, it was a long time when I was in it. But um, there was a sort of period where I was doing a lot of conventions in the States and the fans were a little bit too, you know, wild. And 
I was quite frightened, but now it's all calmed down a bit. And of course, with the new series, there's a huge interest in it again. And I've noticed now, and I'm getting fan mail from very young kids who've started watching the new series, and then obviously they've gone back to watch, you know, all the old episodes that their parents might have got from uh, eBay or whatever. So um, it's a, it's a lease of life. I suppose it'll always go on, which is quite nice in a way. And have you ever gone back and watched those old episodes? No, I I did watch them when I was doing the DVD voiceovers. And uh, again, it just seemed like only yesterday I'd been doing them, but I wouldn't watch them for my own benefit. But my grandson's very into it now, and he loves to watch me in Doctor Who. He's still quite... He can't quite understand why I'm on the television and sitting with him on the sofa looking <laughs> quite different. But he does he does sort of get the idea now that I've been acting and it was something I did before, but he loves it, absolutely loves it. I guess it must be nice in a way to sort of have something like this and, you know, if you go to a convention now, it's mm. it's a new Doctor Who to talk about in a way, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah, it is. I mean, they they always want to talk about the old ones, though, and I've found... Interestingly enough, that most of the fans I've met all prefer the old creaky Doctor Who's, which were, you know, not very good production values, but had to rely more on the kind of um, storyline and the script and what have you. I do like the new series and I do like all these special effects, but I think the diehard fans prefer the earlier ones and the earlier the better, it seems, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, We were chatting a little bit about this um, just in the control room, and I'm going to bring in Nigel here as well. But uh, I I liked in this story the way Romana was put into a period setting, and I I just wondered what your take on that was. Oh, yeah, I love it. I can see Romana in this setting quite a lot. I mean, you know, because of her, you know, glamorous image in the show and what have you, the the 20s, this particular period, especially in the south of France, is, is right up her street, I would have thought. I think she quite enjoys it. And what was your reasoning, Nigel, for for doing it in the 20s? Well, first of all, I always liked Romana. I always liked Mary's Romana. I found oh, her very glamorous and sophisticated. <laughs> thanks, darling. And also, she only had one story on Earth in the key to time season. I think Romana would work really well on Earth because she's slightly out of her depth. Uh, she's very sophisticated and glamorous, so I put her in a sophisticated and glamorous setting, which was a glamorous hotel. Um, I had a choice of hotels. It could have been the Ritz in London, the Waldorf in New York. But I fancied the Hotel de Cap in Antibes. Mm, quite Where, right. You know, I've never stayed there, but I know the place. <laughs> so once I'd put Romana in the 1920s on the Hotel de Cap, I had to come up for a reason for that. And the reason is that the hotel's on the Mediterranean which plays a big part in the story. Mm. See, I thought you were going to say that you went and researched all these places, <laughs> Nigel. Mm. I think we should have done not. it down yeah, there. I guess, <laughs> yeah, 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 frankly, we'd never have, you know... Notting Hill's not quite the same, <laughs> is it? <laughs> so, um, Nigel, you've got your setting. How, do, how did you build your story up from, from having your initial setting? It was very much just breaking it down into a lot of scenes and, um, and two parts. Uh, the first part had a lot of scenes for the build-up, and the second part just had about four or five different scenes. Each scene had to serve a purpose with certain characters. It's just building it up like that, and then reviewing it and knocking out the scenes which don't work. Right. And you had written and edited Doctor Who books for um, W.H. Allen, it was at the time, wasn't That's it? That's right. I was the editor of the Doctor Who range of books for W.H. Allen and Target um, way back in the 80s, and I did some novelizations as well and some original novels too. So, so what was it like returning to it's, it? And it's had... absolutely great. I missed it so much. Really? It's the first time I've done any Who work for about 12, 13, 14 years, and I wow. really enjoyed doing it. Great. And how different was this to, say, doing a, a novelisation or a, an 80,000 word, were they original fiction? You have to be a lot more succinct and c- concise. Um, you're also writing in the first person for Romana, which I'd never done before. 
uh, where obviously in the novel you're writing from the third person. And what, I mean, what's it like hearing Mary perform? Oh, it's wonderful. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> That's a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> gave the right answer. Her, her Romana came across just as it came across on the TV series. And one thing I purposely did with the characters in this drama was give them quite a few different nationalities so Mary could prove just how good she is at accents. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thanks. Well, we don't know about that, but... <laughs> 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 it's it's quite a feat to actually deliver a story solo, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's a lot of work on you. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is a short one compared to one I did earlier this year because um, that was quite a marathon. But um, obviously I had the script in good time, so I was able to read it over and over again. And r- read it out loud is also very important. Despite, despite that, I still had quite a few stumbles over some of the uh, <laughs> technical words, but we've sorted all that out, hopefully. But, it's um, sci-fi. It comes with the territory. <laughs> Hey, look, we finished four hours early. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well done, you. Absolutely. One take time, love. One take yeah. time, they call me. That's right. And, and Lisa, I mean, what's the experience been like for you? Because when we've done some of these in the past where we've had sort of a guest character mm. doing voices, but I know for this we wanted Mary to do Absolutely. the whole range, didn't we? I think, I mean, I think you touched on it earlier on, to be honest. Uh, the, the simplicity of working with one person is very different from doing all the framing stories and how the two characters that we've had in the past in the in the Companion Chronicles, how they relate to each other, uh, uh, how do you convey the story? Do you do it in first person? Do you do it as a narration? Do you do it as a flashback? And and it, it simplifies things enormously with just one person. And because Mary has the aptitude to do different characters and to it's a, it's a good ripping yarn. It's just a good, straightforward story. So the experience on this has, has been a complete joy. It was, it was, it's awful to say it's very straightforward. It, it, that's meant to be uh, flattering as opposed to dismissive, to be honest. And, and, no, it is, uh, it is straightforward in a good sense. Yes, because, exactly. you know, yeah. I think Nigel has streamlined mm. it very well and it's, there's no extraneous yeah. bits, you know. You can overcomplicate things yeah. enormously, especially when it comes to science fiction. You, you know, sometimes it goes a little bit... F- too far down the road of, of techno babble, and and you have to keep the humanity of the story. And I, I, mm. I love some of the characters Nigel's come up with, mm. particularly Tommy. Yeah, Tommy should have his own series. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I mean, obviously at this stage we haven't started on the sound design, but I think the sound design oh, is yeah. going to have a lot of fun with this. And we've got yeah. everything from mm. parties to mucus, I haven't know. we? <laughs> well, a lot of mucus, Nigel. What is it with you and your mucus? To, to be honest, I, I had the sounds in mind when I wrote uh, the script. Oh, fantastic. Right. So we have the cocktail parties, oh, we have yeah. the slime. Mm. And have they have the 20s music, which I love. And the 20s yeah. music, yeah. It's really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a very, very, one of my favourite periods, this. I, mm. I love very it. Very glamorous. Yes, yeah. it is. Mm. And uh, no, you can sum up a lot. And, and uh, Nigel's script, again, has, it really lends itself. Uh, a lot of people, again, who haven't written for audio, um, forget that you've got to work in a soundscape as opposed to a visualscape. Mm. And, um, and Quite difficult. Really, yeah, it is, uh, if, if you're not used to that. Uh, and I think Nigel's done a really good job on this. And it's your first audio script, isn't it, Nigel? My very first, yeah. Oh, well done. Okay. Well done. Very I think it's good. really good. Really good. And I guess one final question. I mean, we were talking about putting Romana into history, and I kind of wondered, Mary, <laughs> do you have any sort of period of history you think Romana would work well in? Um, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I don't know how much has been done with the medieval ages, but I I personally always have had a penchant for that period of history because of the Crusades. You know, I'd quite like to see Romana in um, 
the middle of a crusade, perhaps, or something. I don't know. Great. <laughs> Sword-wielding Ramon. She'd get all those white frocks a bit muddy, wouldn't she? She might, she might. And I, I don't know whose side she'd be on, but uh, maybe she could start out on one side and then realise it was the wrong side and switch to the... I don't know. I don't know. I mean, um, character-wise, um, because she's so inquiring and inquisitive and quite adaptable, I think she probably would... You know, fit in just about anywhere. But I'm thinking back to the series. You see, I don't. I think we did the medieval jousting thing, didn't we? We had that in the Androids of Tara. Yeah. When I was doing the key to time. So um, I don't know. I don't know. Answers on a postcard. Please. <laughs> yes, we'll all have a think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.